Hello and welcome to Asia in Depth. I'm Michelle Flor Cruz. Author and globetrotter Pico Iyer spent the last 16 years pursuing what he has called his crazy idea. He has been writing two books about the same subject at the same time for the same publisher. The books, Autumn Light, Season of Fire and Farewells, and A Beginner's Guide to Japan, Observations and Provocations, capture the contrasting sides of his experience in Japan, the foreign with the familiar, the personal with the public. One book, a memoir that takes place in the wake of the death of Ayer's father-in-law, offers a melancholy view of Japan and its traditions. The other is a playful guide to the quirky idiosyncrasies that make up Japanese life, upending what many in the West may assume about the country, which Pico Ayer has called home for more than 20 years. Ayer recently discussed his two works with James Shaheen, editor of Tricycle Magazine at Asia Society New York. It just occurred to me now that the two books do in a way speak to each other. It seems to me that what is explicit in the beginner's guide is implicitly played out in um, Autumn Light. And one of the things that I heard when you read from uh, a beginner's guide is what you'll miss, uh, and that's the economy of speech and the value placed on individuality and personality in our own culture as opposed to uh, its diminished role in Japan. Can you say something about that? I can say too much, actually, about both of those, especially too much by Japanese standards, but you're absolutely right, because I think the first book, uh, which begins with my father-in-law's death and is about how we make friends with impermanence is really about this sense that absence can fill us up more than presence does. And you all know if you've had a breakup or if you've lost somebody from your life, that person consumes you as the people in your room never can. And just as you perfectly said, I think a lot of the second book is about how silence is more eloquent than speech. And I don't know if I've said this to you before, but soon after I arrived in Japan, I realized that the perfect date in Japan uh, consists of two people going to a movie, sitting in rapt attentiveness before it, and going home and never saying a word about the movie. (laughs) Because the Japanese are wise enough to know that words are what separate us, and speech is what brings us together. And as to go to your point about individuality, uh, sorry, words are what separate us, but silence is what brings us together. I said it exactly wrong, being a Westerner. You can tell I live on a tourist visa in Japan. I'm not truly Japanese. Silence is what brings us together, and partly because silence is what dissolves our individuality. Um, Silence is what brings us into a common space where you're not James and I'm not Pico and we're just part of something much bigger than either of us. Um, And I think you might know, because you've been kind enough to read each of these books two times, uh, I spent, as I said, 16 years writing these very small books in honor of the Japanese principle of subtraction and taking out as much as possible so that the spaces between the lines and the words would speak more, maybe, than the words themselves. And I always think of that Japanese aesthetic, whereby many of you know, if you go into a classical tatami room, there are only two things there, a vase and a scroll. And because there are only two things there, you bring all your attention to them, and you find everything you could want, and much more, just in those two things. And um, it's interesting, when friends ask me, why did I leave New York City to live in Japan, I sometimes say I was drawn there by the empty room, by the sense of having more hours in the day, more space in my head. I was working four blocks from Times Square when I was here, so I had almost an overload of stimulation, and going to Kyoto was a way to clear things out so that I 
in my head and in my physical space. I was in an empty room. But I was just thinking this afternoon, when we think of the empty room in this context, in this side of the world, it suggests loneliness and we, the need to fill it with a human presence. In Japan, somehow, I think the, the emptiness is more aesthetic than emotional. And probably many Japanese feel that they don't have enough space to be by themselves. But that's their conflicting problem. Yeah, you said that what you learned to speak in the West and you learned to listen in Japan. Is that more or less uh, what you're talking about, at least in part? Yeah, now I'm speaking too much and not listening enough. But yes, <laughs> I went there to, to learn to listen and to try to learn to be invisible uh, and to learn to define myself by something other than my resume or my business card. Um, and also, I suppose, to learn that the most important thing about me or you or anybody here is actually what's not individual, what we have in common, which, of course, is the writer's essential knowledge or wisdom, which is that if I'm writing a book, I have to go deep inside myself, but it will only be an effective book if I find that place in Pico that James recognizes inside James and, and others do. Uh, so if you're, going, if you're tunneling too deep into those parts of your own experience which are too much your own, you're locking yourself into a room, really. Well, you said something very funny, or you quoted somebody. You said, if you're thinking about going to therapy, go to Japan instead. I think you were, <laughs> I think you were talking, uh, quoting Joseph Campbell. Exactly. Yeah. What a wise person. He's one of the wisest presences I've ever met. And he, exactly that, <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I was thinking in Autumn Light, you know, these, you know, the individual and the individual's diminished agency becomes very apparent. And the protagonist, of all things, is the season of autumn itself. Yes. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, I, this being the Asia Society, many of you here have probably been in Japan in late November, and you'll know <clears throat> that the skies are blazing blue, cloudless, warmer than Southern California into the early days of December, but underneath that blue uh, are the golds and scarlets and lemon yellows of the turning leaves. I used to live in New York, and I used to live in Boston, and I know that fall is a glorious season here, but there's something about the wistfulness of Japan and the way it plays off the buoyancy in the autumn that really speaks to what I see to be the heart of that culture. Uh, again, this being the Asia Society, many of you know that in Japan, there's one word used for the self that exists behind closed doors and a completely different word for the self that's out in public. And I think it's assumed there'd be no connection between the two. And I've always thought that the cherry blossom, which is pretty and frothy and giggly, a bit erotic, that's the face Japan likes to present to the larger world, but at its heart, it's that mingling of radiance and melancholy that, that is the autumn. Um, and I think when I wrote the book Autumn Light, almost the title suggests that it's a homage to the great Japanese film director, Yasujiro Ozu, who made Late Spring and Early of uh, Autumn Afternoon and Early Autumn and Tokyo Story, many great films, especially in the 1950s. And you remember, if you've seen his films, that quite often there'll be the sound of a festival playing in the street while somebody is sobbing next door. And I think Japan, more than any culture I know, has this sense that beauty and sadness are inextricable. And in fact, happiness and sa sadness are inextricable. Uh, happiness has implicit sadness in it because we know that happiness can't last forever. And, and sadness has a depth that makes for a kind of fulfillment in Japan that fills them up and that we might describe as um, deep engagement in life. Right, so you say that Japan is an autumn country, in other words. I do. And that most clearly defines it for you. Yes, especially because my other official home is California, which is the land of uh, endless summer. 
Um, and, and you know a hundred times more than I do about Buddhism, but I felt when I go back and forth between California and Japan, my elderly mother lives in California, so I have to spend a lot of time there, that California, more than any part of America, is pledged to the pursuit of happiness. And I feel Japan is based on the Buddhist notion of the reality of suffering. And I think when I went to Japan, from New York City and from California, I was really going almost in the spirit of consulting a wise elder who's lived for 1,400 years with typhoon, forest fire, earthquake, warfare, and knows, um, as I said before, how to make its peace with suffering and loss. Um, California and the US, when I was a little kid, gave me this great sense of possibility. But when I was in my late 20s, I thought, now it's a time to complement it with a sense of reality. And I thought maybe one of those Buddhist countries would be the place to go to. Is that a fair assumption? You know a lot about Buddhism. Yeah, no, that, that sounds about right. Uh, <laughs> if I, since I am an editor of a Buddhist magazine, yes. I'll ask you about impermanence, because there's this elegiac tone that, that runs through the book, yes. Autumn Light. And you say quite explicitly at one point that impermanence is more an accepted fact of life in Japan, by far more anyway than here. I think so. Everyone everywhere knows about impermanence, but I think Japan has almost made impermanence its central creed and its religion. And that's why when friends visit from the West when I'm in Japan and they ask me about religion, I sometimes say I think the seasons are the real religion in Japan. And of course that's a religion without texts, without dogmas, without exclusions, but a constant training in changelessness and change. Every year the autumn looks much the same, but every year those of us looking at it are one year older, one year closer or deeper within the autumn of our lives, one year closer to the end. Um, and, and the way in which, as I said in that reading actually, uh, changelessness is what we have hang on to in a world of constant change. Mm -hmm. So I mention in the book how in the tale of Genji, the central work of fiction in Japan, the word for impermanence comes up a hundred, more than a thousand times. Uh, when you're walking around Kyoto, there's a bell, literally, that's tolling. And it's saying, um, this day could be your last. You walk towards a temple in the eastern hills of Kyoto, and there's a big sign which they thoughtfully translate into English that literally um, says something like, today you're laughing, tomorrow you could be Burns. Uh, and I think my Japanese neighbors grow, live with a very keen sense of that. And of course, the natural elements confirm that for them. Uh, and as I said um, up at the podium, I think that's why they're so good at enjoying life. To me, the people I know in Japan have an unusual gift of appreciation. And the quality of certainly public life there is not melancholy. Um, it's very much about accentuating the positive. And it's certainly about living with what you can't change. And maybe they have a much larger sense of what um, they can't change, we can't change, than we do in the US. America's gift to the world is the sense of um, opportunity. Uh, but sometimes the American challenge is thinking it can change everything and being unpleasantly surprised when they find that nature or other forces have a mind of their own. And I think everybody here after the tsunami, for example, in 2011, was struck at how there were very few complaints heard in Japan. Um, they took it stoically as they seemed to take st everything stoically. They just stood patiently in line waiting to see if their lives could be rebuilt. And I think part of that stoicism comes from just what you were saying, which is not being wed to an individual destiny. So people wouldn't complain there because they know every neighbor has gone through as much or more. So what's the virtue of a complaint? And a complaint is just foisting a burden on a neighbor who's probably overburdened already. 
Right, you know, you make a very clear distinction between, in, in autumn light, between unhappiness and loss. So yes. loss is one thing and happiness quite another. Yes, and I think I actually learned that maybe from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who I think is always telling us that suffering and unhappiness are not the same thing, which is a variation on what you said. That suffering, I think, am I fair in saying, for mm -hmm. Buddhists, is the first noble truth. But the next noble truth is how we you know, come to terms with it. And that unhappiness is just the, the um, position we can bring to it or not bring to it um, as we... Uh, see fit. I never forget when I wrote my book about the Dalai Lama, one of the things that most humbled and startled me was to learn that when he concluded his flight into exile in 1959, 14 or 16 days of the highest mountains on earth, and he finally arrived at the Indian border, he turned to his younger brother, who was accompanying him, as you know, on that trip, and he said, now we are free. So instead of seeing this as loss, he was already seeing it as opportunity. We, looking at the Dalai Lama forced into exile, would think he's lost his country, he's lost his home, he's lost the role he was born to execute as ruler of Tibet. What a tragedy. He instantly realized that outside Tibet, he could actually reform the system and bring in many much-needed improvements that maybe he never could have done within the feudalism and the centuries of tradition that encircled him in Lhasa. Uh, and so it's a small example of how he would tell us that almost at any moment, uh, to some extent, not entirely, but maybe more than we suppose, we have the chance to change the world by changing how we look at it. Other people, after um, a period of adjustment, thought, actually, this frees me to do many things I could never have done before, to live more lightly on the earth to move to the other place that I've always wanted to be, um, to notice that actually I didn't need 90% of the clutter that I had in my home. And that really everything you can replace after such a loss um, is the least important stuff, books, clothes, furniture. And everything that's most important is what you can't replace, notes, photographs, keepsakes. Uh, and so I think the Stoics had the same awareness and wisdom that the events of our lives are much less important than what we do with them, which I think is probably a central Buddhist precept, is it? Right, right. Um, yeah, it's interesting that losing all those things opens up a space, and that opens up possibility. Yes. I think. In fact, I mean, I, I've always thought the one blessing of being a writer is that whatever happens to you, you can turn it into material. So I was caught in the middle of that fire for three hours, which made it much less, much easier to lose everything, because I say came so close to losing my life. But as soon as a fire truck found me and I was able to drive down to um, the town, the first thing I did was um, go to a, a computer and write an account of the fire. And the account I wrote you know, two hours after being in the middle of the fire ended with a classic Japanese poem by Masahiro, My house burnt down, now I can see better the rising moon. Right. Um, and that speaks to just what you were saying, I think. Yeah. You know, the, you know, making autumn itself or Japan uh, the protagonist is interesting because you talk about Ozu, you talk about Japanese painters, and how the background becomes foreground. In other words, the conditions that shape us are more prominent or important, really, than how these individuals act out their fate. Maybe it's the relationship to those conditions that is the focus rather than this rather individualistic or willful attempt to, to change conditions. It's beautifully said. I, I love what you just said. And yes, it's exactly how I felt. And again, it sort of plays to this 
fake dialectic I've created between younger societies and older. Because certainly, when I was young, I very much thought, I, I can make my life. I've got all these plans, I've got this agenda, and I can create my life according to it. And at this point in my life, I notice that everything that's happened to me, good or bad, has come out of the blue, and has had very little to do with my intention. And that other forces, whatever they are, have been making my life, probably with a much greater wisdom than I ever could. And I think that is how, what I see at the heart of, of Japanese thinking. Uh, of course, everybody wants to find the love of their life, wants to find happiness, wants their children to grow up healthy, all of that. But I think they, as you suggest, have a much larger sense of... Um, for example, all the natural forces, hence they're bowing before the seasons that play havoc with our lives or remake our lives. And that's why I'm always struck. I think some of the first Japanese paintings I ever saw were in this building. And what struck me was when I look at Hiroshige, I'm not noticing the individual figures. I'm noticing the falling snow or I'm noticing Fuji in the background or I'm noticing the blue of the ocean. Um, if you read an Ishiguro novel, and I think that's why Kazuo Ishiguro, who's lived in uh, England since the age of five, is still such a deeply Japanese figure. Um, at some level, he goes very deeply into complicated emotions. But beyond that, um, the human beings are small figures against, as you said, this huge landscape. Uh, and of course, there have been surveys conducted whereby um, they'll show a painting to a group of kids from Canada and a group of kids from East Asia. And the Canadians, like Americans, probably see what's in the foreground and mm -hmm. the kids from Korea or China or Japan see what's in the background, which is a way of saying they want to be in the background too. And I think, again, growing up as a teenager in California, we were always being told, you've got to be yourself. And I thought, well, I actually went to Japan to, to be not myself, <laughs> uh, to try to understand other people, which is exactly what the writer's job is, to try to get into somebody radically different from yourself. You know, in, in the beginner's guide, they're all sort of koanic statements and like things that like that uh, Rachel read, the arrows, the question yes, mark, and yes. all the mystery. And in Autumn Light, there's this sometimes, you know, it's run through with impermanence and loss and, and, and the weight of conditions. And yet, at the same time, there's ping pong. You play a lot of <laughs> yes, ping pong. thank you. you know? Yes. Um, partly because it's a book about beginning with the death and about getting older. Um, I wanted to make sure that there was a counterpoint. So uh, every day I play ping pong with my mostly elderly um, neighbors in Japan. Um, I'm a sort of teen idol figure because most of them are in their <laughs> 70s and 80s. I'm almost the tallest in the whole club. I'm five foot seven and a half. <laughs> and I'm the youngest by, by far. Um, but one of the things, if, if my wife were here, here, she could reproduce it perfectly. A lot of my neighbors, 83 years old, 84 years old, they look pretty unsteady. But get them behind a ping pong table. Pss, 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 pss. I mean, they, they learned before the, the war. And one thing that's interesting is some, half of them use the Chinese style of holding the paddle and the other half use the Western style. So it's a perfect emblem of Japan caught between these two powers. But one of the things I love is every now and then a teenager will show up in the club and one of my 83-year-old friends would completely thrash him, which reminds you that autumn has strengths that um, spring might envy and that life doesn't go in a straight line um, and that we get stronger in certain ways as the, as the years go on and weaker in others. And I have a, a complimentary passage, as you remember, in the book, in which at one point a young writer from Los Angeles came to Japan for the first time. So his first day in the country, he asked me if I could get together for tea. So I met him, and uh, he had a notebook, and he started reading out sentences about Japan. And I was very taken aback. 
these seemed quite illuminating. And I said, my goodness, I would never see that in a month of Sundays. And he looked at me strangely, and he kept on reading. And, and I thought, gosh, I, I, wish, you know, I wish I had that kind of insight. These are extraordinary observations. Where did you get them from? And he pointed out that he got them all from the book I wrote at my first year in Japan, <laughs> uh, which reminded me I knew more when I was 29 than I did 30 years later. And that's also a good thing to be reminded, that actually yeah. fresh eyes seem much more than familiar eyes often. Right. For many of them, retiring was a new spring, really. For yes, many yes. Play. And I think, for me, that was part of the beauty of the ping-pong club, because I think it's, it's relatively easy for foreigners to make contact with women in Japan, because sadly, women still um, relegated to the margins of public life and really second-class citizens. Uh, Japan's very backward, I would say, in its treatment of women. So women have everything to gain by making friends with foreigners, um, and even, in some cases, marrying unpromising foreigners like myself. Uh, but I'd never really met Japanese men. Japanese men were just those guys in three-piece suits yawning at six in the morning as they're waiting to take the bus to their office and barking at convenience store clerks and, uh, as I saw it, turning their backs on their wives and children to support them only financially. But just as you say, um, in the ping-pong club, suddenly they were in springtime. Again, they were released at last in their 70s from all their responsibilities. They were as charming as little boys. They'd dance around when... Um, they won a point, and they were allowed to be humans again, and they were as engaged as grandfathers as they'd, as they'd been seemingly disengaged as fathers. And so I think a lot of the book is about how, on a day like today in New York City, in Japan, it would be called a second spring day, or a baby spring day, and that autumn has spring inside it. Um, spring, well, spring doesn't have so much of autumn. I think that's the advantage that autumn has over spring, that it has the memories of spring and summer. And, and, and actually, therefore, too, can appreciate the, a day like today even more um, because it knows what's past and it knows what's to come. You know, I have to say, when I, I was t really taken with the ping-pong club and, and the teams, and I have to admit that I kept thinking, is somebody going to win? I mean, is there somebody <laughs> going to be the star, the, the, the great ping-pong award or something. And in fact, competition plays a very different role, if any. So do you want to say something about that? I found that very interesting, that baseball could end in a tie. I mean, <laughs> my response was how unsatisfying, you know? Yes. Um, but I guess the virtue is harmony. You say something about that. Exactly. I mean, it reminds me of what um, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, I think, which is you give your all to every moment, but you don't try to win that people are keeping um, track of the points in every game, but they're not keeping track of who's winning the games, which means everybody leaves after an hour and a half of furious excitement playing ping-pong in an equal state of delight. I couldn't tell you at the end of any day, have I won more games than I've lost? All I could tell you is I've had a really good time. And um, it's interesting, again, as you, as you were saying, we play best of two sets, which usually <laughs> means there's no, no winner or loser. Um, if, the, if somebody does happen to lose... You, we change partners every six minutes by lot. So if you did lose, you're sure likely to win again six minutes on with a new mm. partner. Um, and uh, yes, and I, I think I have in the book, and you and I may have spoken about it before, uh, this example about when uh, one of the first times an American manager came to Japan to lead a professional team, Bobby Valentine, actually, from the Mets in 1995. He took this really mediocre squad. He led them to a stunning second-place finish. And he was instantly fired. <laughs> and many foreigners were taken aback, so they went to the team, what's with this? And back came the answer from the team spokesman, oh, he was fired because of his emphasis on winning. And it was a tonic reminder, as 
James was saying, here we think winning is a good thing. Right. There, maybe not, because that creates losers, and that creates inequity and rifts within the society. Um, and to me, Japan really functions like a symphony orchestra. And in a symphony orchestra or a choir, there are no winners or losers. Um, they're all working together to create a harmony, which is why foreigners are quite threatening to Japan and in Japan. We're going to take a quick break to let you know about some upcoming events we have at Asia Society. And while these events are taking place in New York, you can still catch the conversations wherever you are, live, for free, at asiasociety.org live. On December 17, New York Magazine's food critic Adam Platt will be at Asia Society New York discussing his new memoir, recounting a youth spent around the world and how that paved the way for a life as a professional glutton. On December 18, Join us for our annual end-of-year discussion, where our president and CEO, Josette Sheeran, is joined by panelists to offer up forecasts and predictions for Asia in 2020. You can find more information about those programs and learn more about what else we have going on and our other centers around the world at asiasociety.org events. And now let's get back to Pico Iyer and James Shaheen. Right. The notion of identity is very different, and, and that's, mm. that seems to be part of it. When you were speaking at the beginning of the evening, you talked about you know, changing, uh, that feelings are so fleeting, or what we think this morning, we may not think this evening. And you talk about, in Autumn Light, how they may change clothes five times a day. Yes. Uh, what they are in the morning may not be what they are in the evening. And we may think, well, that's, uh, there's a lack of continuity there. But what they're saying really is that there isn't that continuity. Uh, there isn't that continuity. There is not that continuity. No. Though I also sometimes think um, they change constantly on the surface in every way so as not to change deep down. Right. Uh, the famous example everyone cites is that the most celebrated sacred Shinto shrine in the land in Issei, many of you know, is rebuilt every 20 years. So it'll mm -hmm. always be in the same state of dilapidation and freshness. I mean, just imagine if we did that to Notre Dame or the Vatican or whatever. Unthinkable from our way of thinking. But there, it's, it's, a, it's another kind of riddle about changelessness and change, like the emperor's statement about nothing really changing during, mm -hmm. during the war. Um, it's interesting, that notion about individuality. I think maybe 19 years ago, I wrote a piece for your magazine about it in relation to the Buddha from Brooklyn and how when teachers from the East come and uh, instruct us in what to do with the self and the non-self, it's hard for them not to be something significant lost in translation, just because the idea of the self that they're working with is probably very different from... Right. Um, I'm guessing if one of my Japanese neighbors were here and you asked, what is yourself, he'd show you the card representing his company or tell you which neighborhood he lived in or which family he'd been part of. You or I might not do that. <laughs> Um, and so the self is that much harder for us to right. dissolve, probably. You know, you have a long relationship with the Dalai Lama. Uh, I think you see him every year, is that right? Or yes, every yes, year? at least. Right. Yes. Um, and you made an observation uh, that I found very interesting. You said, when the Dalai Lama is here and he talks about ritual, nobody really pays attention. But if he talks about meditation, everyone li listens with rapt attention. Um, whereas in Japan, it's the reverse. He talks, they t he talks about meditation. They're not particularly interested. When he talks about ritual, uh, they're taken with that. How do you see that? So I must say, I, c I can't take credit for that observation. That was the Dalai Lama himself who mm -hmm. noticed that when he was in Japan. Um, and yes, again, you know more about this than I do, but my sense is that, well, Buddhism doesn't have much in the way of texts in Japan. It mostly is a set of 
rituals. Shinto, of course, has no texts whatsoever. Um, and that goes back to the point about silence. That's why it can bring everyone together. There are no um, doctrines for scholars to argue about the way they might with the Bible or the Talmud or, or whatever. Um, and I think for, for the Dalai Lama, coming from a very analytical, rigorous, philosophical kind of Buddhism, it can almost be a frustration that they're not wrestling with the ideas and texts as his um, community would. Uh, but... Um, the, the Japanese have, have made an art of, of, of saying nothing and not complicating the head uh, and seeing that the head can make a mountain of a, out of a molehill, whereas our lives are often making a molehill out of a mountain, really. I mean, our, our lives are simpler than our ideas about it. And to go back to what you were saying a minute ago about continuity, um, there's that wonderful line I, I think I've written for you also about Leonard Cohen, who, of course, was an ordained Zen monk for five and a half years. And he had that great line, um, I, I don't care about my inner feelings, inner feelings come and go. I don't trust inner feelings, inner feelings come and go. Which again is almost a heretical thing to us. Our inner feelings come and go and we don't take them seriously. He didn't as a result of his, well, 40 years of, of training with a, a Zen teacher. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's another example of how great perhaps the divide is by the way we deal with things and sometimes they do over there. Yeah, I would think that a very highly ritualized life would keep a rather clear mind. Uh, you talk about the seasons in Japan being separated into uh, 70 or so. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, and that looking at the autumn leaves itself is a ritual. Yes. Well, I hadn't thought, I love what you just said, and I hadn't thought of it that way, that a ritual does clear the mind. And I think what you did just now is define Zen practice, which is almost entirely ritual. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's freeing you from the needless thoughts with which we disable ourselves. And so, absolutely so, um, most of my neighbors get up in their Sunday best, flock out into the temple gardens every late November to look at the same trees they see every year. Um, and I suppose it's the way we might go and see the, the rose windows at Chartres, or I love St. Patrick's Cathedral here. I could see them again and again and again. And the reason I like looking at those windows or looking at the maple leaves is, again, it puts me in place. <laughs> it reminds me of everything that's much larger than I am, that's probably going to affect my life much more than I could. You know, when I was preparing uh, for our podcast several months ago, uh, I read Autumn Light, and then I got an email from you saying, oh, by the way, there's another book. And <laughs> yes. your publisher was rather unhappy that they would be published so closely together, so they, they, they moved them apart a bit. Um, but they really are kind of companions, aren't they? those two books. Like Brother and I mean, Sister. I mean, I had to read an extra book before I talked to you. Yes. Yes. And I but, must and say, I liked it. But. My publisher was very wise because my idea was to bring them out on the same day. And they thought, well, <laughs> they'll cannibalize like each that. other. Yeah, you're a publisher. You know that wouldn't be wise. So they put a few weeks between them. Uh, but uh, as I say, my hope is that they speak for different parts of ourselves. Uh, because I feel that whenever we're choosing a partner or a job or a place to live in, what we're really looking for is that blend of the foreign and the familiar. We need the foreign to keep ourselves stimulated, look around the next corner. We need novel to be engaged, but we need the familiar um, to ground us and make us feel settled and calm. Again, it's changelessness and change in a way. Um, and so I wanted to write one book about why Japan feels mysteriously familiar to me and is familiar on an emotional level to everybody in this room. Uh, at the same time as I wanted to express the many fascinating ways that it's always foreign. And I think that's why I would 
wish I could spend every hour of my life in Japan because I never sustained the illusion that I could get to the bottom of it or I'm on top of things there. Um, I, I spent my first 21 years in England and unfortunately a part of me feels I can read England. I, I have a sense of what England is, which means I can't write about it and I can't be surprised. My eyes have closed to it. I, I've terminated my conversation with it, even though it's no doubt got many things with which to surprise me. Whereas with Japan, I'm, every time I go to the grocery store, I'm reminded I don't have a clue, which is wonderful for a, for a writer because it means there's always the prospect of learning something new and then being surprised yet again. You know, for all of the, the, the focus on autumn and the conditions that shape our lives, there's also, it's also a story of personal loss. I mean, it starts with your father-in-law, uh, his death. Uh, your mother-in-law goes to uh, home. Uh, we learn that your brother-in-law is someone whom you've never met, uh, that he's had a rift with family. He's a Jungian psychologist, I think. Is that right? It is. Yeah, and yes. odd in Japan, right? Maybe he should come to the West. Um, but you talk about this family and its splinters a bit. Yes. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I, I found that very moving. I mean, what's actually going on in the family and also with the ping-pong club. People disappear and we learn that they've passed away. Yes. Uh, and they get a new partner. So they just get a new, get a new ping pong player. Um, but there's this acceptance on the one hand, and yet there's this great sadness too. Yes, I love that. The mix of acceptance <clears throat> and, and real feeling. And I, I think what you were describing in the family is exactly right. And that's the universal. Every family is broken. And every family in the world is about broken hearts, in part. And how do you live with the broken hearts and the rifts will, that will be there between parent and child or between siblings? And what you said in passing about my uh, brother-in-law moving to the West actually really puts its finger on, uh, on the whole book, essentially, and that mm -hmm. whole story. Uh, because when I moved to Japan in the late 1980s, there were four registered psychoanalysts in all greater Tokyo, population 15 million psychoanalysis that Jungian or Freudian psychology isn't something traditionally they've done in Japan. And my brother-in-law, I've known my wife 32 years, but as James has just said, I've never met my brother-in-law. He, at a very early age, surveying the post-war landscape in Japan, as his father was pushing him towards economics, said, no, I think there are going to be um, a lot of confused minds in our society. I need to study psychology. So uh, he did that in Japan, but then he did come to this country uh, to get his master's in Kansas, and then he went to Switzerland and got his doctorate in, oh, that's uh, right. at the Jung Institute. And then he came back to Japan, and he did what I think any therapist recommends all of us to do, which is write a 25-page letter to the parents about everything they've done wrong, and to the sister. <laughs> but he also did what every therapist says you shouldn't do, which is send it to the parents. <laughs> uh, and since I've never met him, I'm not in a position to know why he cut off the entire family, parents and sister, 30 years ago. But a part of me wonders whether bringing Jungian psychology into a rather traditional Buddhist society doesn't again make for something that's getting mistranslated. The Buddha famously said, if you have an arrow sticking out of your flesh, don't question where the arrow came from or what kind of arrow it is, just pull it out. Very pragmatic, just like the Dalai Lama, who I see is essentially a doctor traveling the world and offering prescriptions. Um, Jung would say, you know, think about where that arrow came from and go to the source. And um, I think I, I may be misrepresenting it, but one way or another, uh, 
my, I'm realizing one of the hidden currents in the book is I was traveling to Japan to learn all the things I thought that Japan could teach me I couldn't so easily find in California. And at the very same time, my unmet brother-in-law was coming here, just as you say, mm -hmm. to learn the things that everyone, that we can teach Japan. Um, so, so yes, the whole book is, is centered around a family because um, families have no address. They belong everywhere. Uh, and, 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 and so the thought was to sort of demystify Japan uh, and say that if any of you go there tomorrow, you'll be endlessly fascinated by the foreign surfaces. But what will really reach you is the kindness and probably the familiarity of the people, which is not something that's foreign at all. Mm -hmm. You know, I may have asked you this before. I don't remember, but uh, perhaps in the podcast. Uh, you know, you, you have parents who are Indian. Uh, you grew up in Oxford and in California. Uh, you're a Westerner, um, and yet you've lived, or visited at least, most everywhere. And mm -hmm. you spend seven months a year in Japan. Um, and you move easily in both cultures, despite the distance sometimes you feel in Japan. Uh, and we're living at a time where that cosmopolitanism or that globalism is under threat. I mean, rising nationalism mm. and really around the world mm. is challenging that whole notion so true. Of, of this sort of cosmopolitan or globalized life. Do you feel up against that at all, or how do you see that? A part of me thinks, or maybe hopes, nationalism is on the rise because it's on the run. And people clearly are feeling very threatened by those of us crossing borders, willingly or unwillingly. The main division in the world is between the city and the countryside. I was just thinking yesterday, um, as you said, I'm familiar with North Korea and Iran and Easter Island. I've never been to Mississippi. I've never been to South Dakota. So those people in, let's say, rural America mm -hmm. who feel that urban people like me are ignorant of them and belong to another planet are right. They're justified. And same thing in, in my native England. The gap between London and the rest of the country is a gap between centuries and a gap between... London has much more in common with Shanghai and Tokyo than it may with rural Suffolk or... Um, Yorkshire, or wherever right. it might be. So um, it's a very significant problem, but I think the reason the nationalists are whipping up this fervor is they realize at an individual level, incrementally, day by day, um, black and white are disappearing, dissolving. Uh, every time somebody in this room or in this city befriends or especially falls in love with somebody from another culture, which happens a million times a day, the child who emerges out of that union is going to make a mockery of east-west or black-white divisions. Um, I read in the New York Times a few years ago, this is startling, that in 1958, 3% of Americans approved of mixed-race marriages. Uh, by 2014, it was 87% approved. 3% 87% in my lifetime. I never, 20 years ago, would imagine that I would see um, a half Kenyan, half Kansan man who grew up in Indonesia, ostensibly the most powerful person in the world. Um, if we look at the world of writing, Zadie Smith, Malcolm Gladwell, they're all themselves in their, in their beings exploding the distinctions between black and white. I was in San Francisco a few years ago, and I was talking to a woman, and she said, well, maybe um, I don't think so fondly about Islam. And lo and behold, my daughter marries someone from Iran, my granddaughter is Islamic. How can I hate my granddaughter? And I think at that level, 
person by person, we're moving forward so quickly that these larger tribal groups want to pull us back into the past because they're scared of that future. But that future, I think, is unavoidable. Right. I mean, the, it, the, the pace of change is so rapid that maybe yes. that's drawing. Uh, yes. uh, you talk about how London has changed from the time you were a boy yes. until now. So. Yes. And I think, to me, the more serious problem is a gap between the relatively privileged cosmopolitans like myself and probably many in this room and the vast number of refugees who are being forced out of their homes by necessity, never wanted to leave their homes, have to face these same questions about where do I belong and what is my home, but in a much more undefended and anguished way than the likes of me would ever have to do. And so somebody like me, too much is seeing the world at 37,000 feet mm-hmm. and, and where borders do dissolve. But those people are crossing borders and the borders within them and outside them are very sharp and pronounced. And, and that's what people like me need to be thinking about, I suspect. Right. How did your children uh, sort of adjust to this moving back and forth, or did they? Were they... Uh, they didn't move back. So both my, my stepchildren are entirely Japanese. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, suddenly their mother foisted on them this strange-looking dog who was at the dinner table every evening, who was me, um, who couldn't speak much Japanese. And they, being Japanese, were incredibly patient and, and kind with me. Um, our relations were made quite a bit easier when they were growing up because, really, they spoke very limited English and I spoke very limited um, Japanese. But uh, it goes back to something I was saying earlier about Japan, about the serious rift I feel there, which is... As soon as my son graduated from university, he joined Japan Airlines, he got a very nice job in Tokyo, he married, he's got a daughter, and he's leading a perfect Japanese life. The day my daughter graduated, uh, she fled Japan, moved to Spain, um, lived there for eight years, came back wonderfully from Spain with fluent English as well as Spanish. So now I actually do have a family member with whom I can communicate very clearly. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) A mixed blessing. for them at least. Uh, but again, again, the woman ha- has everything to gain by leaving Japan and the mm-hmm. man everything to lose uh, yeah. by, by leaving. Um, I think the other aspect of your can- question there has to do with my wife. And of course, when I went to Japan seeking to learn discipline and, and clarity and rootedness there, my third week in the country, I met my wife who was as drawn to the California that I represented that spoke for freedom, the chance to do things she could never do in Japan, and the possibility of making her own destiny, which wasn't really something that she was given as a woman in Japan. But more than my precipitating a change in her, um, she had an American friend who was living in Japan as a single mom, uh, undergoing full Zen practice and working full time. And my wife, who was married to a Japanese man when I met her, thought, wait a minute, if an American woman can go to a foreign country, support her two kids alone, um, and learn about the traditions, why can't I as a Japanese woman? I have as much spirit and energy and determination as she. And so she did what was very radical in 1988, which was walk out of her um, marriage with her two kids and say to herself, um, I'm going to be sufficiently Western to make my own future and not to accept the terms that have been given me. Now, many years on, it's almost startling how many of her younger female friends are divorced. Um, And that's one of those things that, on the one hand, most of my Japanese neighbors would say, we're becoming too American. We're losing our soul and our identity to the West. And these are some of the 
things that are exploding the nuclear family and tearing at this order that we've created over 1,400 years. Other people might say, well, finally, um, Japan is realizing that it can't suppress its women and that uh, in a global order, even Japan has to be attentive to the global norms, one of which is equal opportunities for men and women. Um, so people would debate how much it's losing and how much it's gaining, but certainly the Japanese women are gaining, they're at the cost of losing their marriages. You know, I, I, I hope I got this right. Uh, a Zen priest introduced you to your wife, is that right? Yes, well, we, yes, that's right. <laughs> Essentially, we met at his wedding, so, uh, at his uh, initiation ceremony of some mm-hmm. kind, and he always delighted in calling himself our, his, our Cupid. He was very glad mm-hmm. that we met there rather than the discotheque or bar. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, the book is also about aging. You know, I had yes. knee surgery this year, so I think oh, about it now. Ouch, yeah. Um, it seems that aging in Japan isn't quite so dire as it seems to be here. Is that true? Maybe. I aside, mean, from, aside from dealing with it, uh, the physicality of it, I mean, it seems that there's more of a place or a, a path. A path. That's, that's a perfect way of putting it. Yes, and that age has traditionally been revered in East Asia as in most traditional societies. I mean, when I first arrived in Japan, I was taken aback to be told that the polite question to ask somebody as soon as you meet her is, how old are you? Uh, because then you know how deeply to bow, where you stand in relation to her. You know, if, if a young-looking woman says she's 73, actually you look on her with much more respect, which, believe me, is not the case in California. Uh, but I grew up in California. So that's right, sorry. I'm suffering greatly. <laughs> sorry to be using it as a straw dog in this argument. Uh, but yes, indeed, uh, in that sense. Though, again, I think my Japanese friends would worry that the social fabric is fraying there, and one phenomenon I touch on in my book, but which has got a lot of play here recently, is how elderly couples in Japan often don't have anymore a daughter to look after them in their old age because she's moved to New York City or California, perhaps, or because she wants an American destiny even while remaining in Japan and is less committed to filial responsibility. And so, famously, they will literally go and hire an actress to come and knock on their door every Sunday and say, Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. I've really missed you. Let's have a wonderful Sunday afternoon together, which to us is is strange, but um, to the Japanese is a very practical way of dealing with a hole in the heart and a real problem. Right. Where you live and what you describe in the book, though, in many ways seems so traditionally Japanese. I mean, is that because it's a suburb and removed from the city? So traditionally. Yeah, it seems seems very, I mean, it it, it seems that in many ways the way they're living is the way they've lived for a very, very long time, the way it's described. Yeah, I'm so glad you say that. And of course, that's my prejudice speaking. My Japanese friends may say something different, Mm -hmm. but exactly so. And I think one of the themes of the Autumn Light book is that the suburb where I live is built in the 1970s to look like Long Island, um, it's entirely Western. All the, nearly all the buildings Western style. All the streets are straight. Not a single shrine or temple in the entire neighborhood. And even the two main drags are literally called school dory and park dory, using the uh, English language terms to convince my mostly elderly retired uh, neighbors that they've attained their dream of living in a Japanese version of California. So it couldn't look less traditional. But just as James was saying, it's on the edge of the city of Nara, which was the capital in the year 710. And Nara, though more populous than Cincinnati or Pittsburgh, has right at its heart the biggest municipal park 
in all of the country. And those of you who've been there will know that central Nara is nothing but temples and, and shrines and pagodas and reflecting ponds and sutra houses and most visibly 1,200 wild deer who roam around untamed, literally uh, ruling the place. If you go to the city hall building, five-story glass and concrete building, you'll find stags seated on the front steps. Uh, and those, those deer speak for just the traditions that James was mentioning because um, they're there because in the year 763, a deity was believed to have been seen coming over the western hills on a white deer. So they speak for that Shinto notion that everything has a soul. Kami-sama, you see this in the movies of uh, Miyazaki, if you've seen Spirited Away or Princess Mononoke. This has a soul, that has a soul, this napkin has a soul in Japan. But they also, of course, remind everyone that the Buddha delivered his first sermon in the deer park in Sanath. So uh, my sense is very much that um, the surfaces of Japan couldn't be more modern, more Western, and more zany, and the depths are entirely uh, traditional and deep and filled with spirits and startlingly changeless, uh, which has been a big problem for Japan geopolitically because I think it literally doesn't speak the language of the rest of the world. Metaphorically, it doesn't speak the language of the rest of the world either. But culturally, it's, it's kept it an island. It's main, maintained its uniqueness, and um, it, it therefore remains an ever more powerful magnet for visitors from around the world who want to see this place that isn't part of global suburbia and doesn't look like anywhere else. You know, when I listen to you talk and I consider both books, uh, they're full of insights about Japan. It seems that you're intimately familiar with Japan, and yet you continue to say <laughs> that the longer you're there, the less you understand or the, less, mm. uh, the more distance there is. Uh, how is that? Well, the book I wrote 31 years ago may have more observations than these two put together, actually. The first book I presented, actually, at the Asia Society. Uh, but also, I think the longer I've been there, the more I've seen how fruitless opinions and thoughts are. Mm -hmm. It's just like the flashes of sun on the ocean. They're it's fun, not changing though. the ocean. Sorry? They're fun, though. They are fun, exactly. Well, I think treated as fun. They're right. endlessly fun. And yeah. that's why I... Um, end my preface to the beginner's guide by saying, you know, this is a book not to be taken too seriously. <laughs> uh, so I, f I follow pro sports passionately uh, because you, one has very strong opinions and responses to it, but you know that they don't mean very much or that these aren't important things. And I think that's exactly how um, most of our opinions are. We can hold them passionately, but we shouldn't be attached to them because they're just right. they're the clouds that are happening passing right now. That's all for this week's episode of Asia In-Depth. You can check out our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes. Please be sure to keep up with everything going on at Asia Society by following us on Twitter and Facebook at Asia Society. Next week, Asia Society's Executive Vice President Tom Nagorski sits down with world champion cricket player Sana Mir. Mir was recently honored with an Asia Game Changer Award, not only for her display of elite athleticism, but also for her work inspiring millions of young girls in Pakistan and other parts of South Asia. Here's a preview. Letting girls play outside was was something very new and was not acceptable. But cricket with this, it's dress code, and I think the way we carry, I, I do take a lot of credit with all my teammates. The way we were able to... Um, carry ourselves on and off the field, uh, earned a lot of trust from the people of Pakistan. And I think that's one of the biggest achievements, that people felt safe, they felt proud, we, we kept to our values, 
and uh, we did not offend our people. I mean, we were playing for Pakistan, not against. Thanks for listening. I'm Michelle Flor Cruz. See you next week. Thank you.